Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Academic Light. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm your show host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Alicia Andrzejewski, who is the author of a recent HuffPost piece called, I'm Struggling to Get Sober and Working in Academia Only Makes It Harder. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about the important topic of addiction and academia. Before we go into that, Will you please take a few minutes and tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, So as you pronounce beautifully, my name is Alicia Andrzejewski. I'm an assistant professor at the College of William and Mary. I was hired as a Shakespeare scholar, a scholar of early modern culture and texts, but I also have an expertise in cultural studies. And as I go on in my career, I find myself writing more outside of the early modern period. So that includes articles on everything from Tennessee Williams to black playwrights, but also as you know, the reason that I'm on this podcast, these public facing pieces about issues in academia. And in thinking about my unconventional, wide ranging, eclectic, areas of interest, I actually started thinking the other day, I wonder if I'm a scholar of popular studies, like popular culture, because who is more popular than Shakespeare, right? And and I I really like this revision of what it is I do and what my area of expertise is, because I'm really interested in what connects us. And that is a thread through all of my pieces. So if we're going to think about intersectionality, we often think about difference, but I'm interested in, in sameness, right? Where we connect and popular studies and studies of popular culture is a really rich place to explore what connects us. So that's sort of where I'm at in terms of my area of expertise and what I teach and what I do and what I write is thinking about the popular. So my first book is on queer pregnancy in Shakespeare's plays, hopefully coming out next year, uh, where I look at his representations of pregnancy and I put them in conversation with contemporary queer theory and queer studies, looking at lesbian-like women and intimacies and how 
they shape our visions of pregnancy. And my second book is going to be on mad women in Shakespeare. Uh, So thinking about these women who are characterized as crazy or mad um, as instead angry complainants who face injustice. And then, yeah, I, I, I've written on everything from, as I said, what black playwrights had taught me about Shakespeare to mental illness in the Academy. I'm working on a piece, another piece for the Chronicle now on the problem of pregnancy in the Academy. So so that's a little bit about my very all over the place areas of interest, but I think we can put them all under the umbrella of, of the popular or issues and topics that impact a great number of us. That's what I'm really interested in researching and writing and thinking about. And you're interested in connection. Yes. And when we look at something like connection, we must necessarily look at things like disconnection. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is your experience of disconnection what led you to write the piece that brings us here today? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Yes. I think that in all of my pieces, I'm, I'm reaching out and trying to form community, and I do that from a place of disconnection at first. So when, for example, one of my earlier Chronicle pieces on mental illness in the Academy, it was inspired by getting a bipolar diagnosis and not really knowing anyone else with bipolar disorder and not really understanding the disease and and feeling disconnected. And so when I reached out for sources, which I do on social media, even just the process of interviewing for these pieces, it was community building and connection building. But I do think that many of my pieces start from that sense of disconnection and alienation and loneliness. And I think that in, in, yeah, in a lot of cases, my writing is an attempt to reach out um, from that place and, and speak from that place. And certainly disconnection characterizes addiction and those of us that struggle with addiction just because there's so much shame attached to being an addict and facing the stereotypes that um, are attached to addiction. And it can be very lonely, you know, the the secrecy around addiction. And I'm not going to pretend like it's a totally selfless attempt to um, shed light on a disease. I, I write for me, too. I write, I write to connect with other people, um, and to shape my own story and tell my own story. But certainly I, for a long time, I felt that loneliness and shame and disconnection around my, my drinking in particular. And the article takes us right into what seems to be a pivotal moment for you. You, you take us to 
you sitting in the library and at the top of your to-be-read pile is All's Well That Ends Well. And you have a book that's due in a month. You have 20,000 more words to write. You've already pushed the deadline back enough times that you don't feel you can ask to push it back again. And you note that you are not even close to being done. And you're sitting there. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. You have the books. You have the space. You're in a library. And you pack up. You go across the street to a grocery store. And what happens? Yeah, I buy I buy my Coors Light. Um, it's it's funny. Back so I've struggled with alcoholism for a decade. Um, really, ever since I started grad school, and before I had my daughter, it was vodka. And there is this sense, at least the lie I told myself was beer is somehow better than hard liquor. So ever since I stopped nursing my daughter, beer has been the beverage of choice. And there is something different about going into a grocery store versus going into an ABC store. But, but yes, I, you know, I went into the grocery store and I can still feel that cool air in the beer aisle, right? Like in, in the, yeah, in the beer aisle, aisle and they're all sitting there behind the glasses and you can pick them out. But I would always grab a 12 pack because that was about two days worth for me. And, and yeah, every day I would wake up and I would say, today I'm going to work four hours on my book and I'm not going to drink and I'm going to exercise and, you know, this laundry list of everything you need to do to be a healthy and productive person. And by 11 a.m. on many days, that just all went to hell. And it was because I was really stressed out. (laughs) So yes, I packed up and went and, and bought beer threaded through this article is the intense pressure of academia um, and academic life, whether you're an undergraduate or a graduate student, an instructor, if you're contingent, if you're trying to get tenure, every phase of it, there is a lot of work and a lot of pressure. Yes. Some of this story you have shared on social media, and I follow you on social media. You were posting a bit about your book deadlines and the pressure. Mm -hmm. And everything in me wanted to reach out and say, tell your editor. (laughs) Tell your editor you want more time. Yeah. We're we're not taught that that's an okay thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's so easy to feel like a failure in academia. It, for a number of reasons, I think for me, the amount of unstructured time, so my drinking really ramped up during leave, which is a common thread in the other academics I interviewed for this piece, because of the amount of unstructured time, you don't have to be on campus to teach. And even when you do, it's two to three days a week for many of us. And I just don't, I didn't do well with that unstructured 
time. You have one big deadline where you where a 70,000 word manuscript is due. I had about five months once I started, you know, the summer slash leave. And it's too easy every day when you're staring down your computer and you have books upon books to read. And it's hard for everyone. But listen, there's been a lot of scholarship written about Shakespeare <laughs> to get through. And it's just when when that there's that pressure and the mountains of work to do and and there's never the sense that you're really done it can be really overwhelming and and really difficult and academia is unique in that way it's it's funny my husband read the piece he's a copy editor and he said, you know, in one paragraph, you're talking about the pressures of academia. And then the next, you're saying you only have to be somewhere two to three days a week. How does that make sense? And for people who aren't academics, you know, it does sound weird. Like, what do you mean you have all this flexibility and unstructured time and your job is super hard? Like, try going into law or medicine or something like that. But I think it's precisely because we are responsible for our own output, our own schedules, um, holding ourselves accountable, that it can get really tough and it can feel like you're, you're never done and you've never done enough. And at the end of the day, there are still a million things that you need to do and could have done and should have done. And to escape that at least I turn to something really destructive, which is alcohol, to quiet those voices, to relieve the pressure. And it it is something that our non-academic friends and family struggle to understand the schedules that we have, why we have so much work. And it it always comes as a gigantic blob. Yes. <laughs> you, you need to you need to write 70,000 words and we'd like it in 18 months. Yes. That is a giant blog assignment. <laughs> yes. You you can do it any way you want as long as you get it to them. Also, your editor is a brand new temporary colleague. They are there for a specific reason. Often you haven't met them. You want to please them. Your the contract is what we're told is a holy grail type of thing. And if they have told you we would like 70,000 words from you on this agreed upon topic that we have signed a contract for you to do, and we want it by X date, that is more than the human brain can make sense of. So then we in some way have to break it down into understandable bits and get it done, which is maybe where people make the parallel to medicine or to law. Well, I know when I go into the office, I have to see X number of patients. So I have to see for an hour, I have to file these number of insurance claims or sign off on these things. And everything has to be done by the time, you know, my office staff leaves at 6 p.m. That is a lot of work that they're going to do. And there's more than I just named. But there is a structure and the colleagues aren't temporary. You show up at work. They are there. 
they are going to work a certain number of hours as well. In academia, if you are there two days a week and the colleague that you trust the most is there two days a week, but their two days are not your two days, it, it becomes this blob of connection as well. Your friends start to feel kind of imaginary. <laughs> um, it, it's all... Yeah, it's very amorphous. And depending on a person's um, unique, beautiful brain, that either gives them space to really create or it free falls. And it can be both. Like, I think it's both for me, depending on where I am with my mental health and where I am with my physical health. But it goes back to the disconnection and isolation. What when you were speaking about the colleagues not being there on the same days, I was thinking about an academic I interviewed uh, who also struggles with bipolar disorder, and she said academia is really lonely. You know, it's it's really isolating, and you're right. If in other professions you go into the office and you see the same people every day and you're in it together and you can talk and you really have to work hard to form similar communities in academia. I have a number of friends, colleagues, colleague friends, they're scattered all over the country. Our primary method of communication is texting. I got on the phone with one about a month ago to talk through my book. And I was shocked to hear his voice. You know, he just became more real to me. And I, oh, it, it just, it's painful to think about how joyous it would be to walk into the office and get to see him every day in person. So yeah, I mean, it's very, it can be very lonely. And so you take, if we go back to the opening of this piece where you've left the library, you've gone to the grocery store, you've gone home with your purchase, you take us through what happens next. But it seems to be the day that you have a real decision that you decide to make. Yes. And it's funny, in, in my recovery community, one of the exercises you do is they call it writing your last drunk, right? Which is which is a way of saying that pivotal moment when you hit bottom or you really decided, I can't do this anymore. And so the story I shared in the piece was was that for me. And the recommendation is every year on your sober date, you go back and reread it to remind yourself of where, how far you've come and where you don't want to go back to. And so in the article, uh, I describe, and it's so, and it's, and it's funny too, because I describe my husband watching me come in with the beer and he works from home and he's just, he's very hands off when it comes to my struggles. He has this really deep understanding that I can only help myself. Right. And in that way he is supportive, but I still struggled to, I was embarrassed and ashamed to even hide the fact I was drinking at 11 AM, 12 PM from him. So I come in with the beer and 
you know, he'd look up and then get back to work and I would very quietly try to open it and take out four bottles and I would bring them upstairs to my room and drink them very quickly on an empty stomach and just sort of scroll through my phone mindlessly. And the goal was to blot out all of the panic around this book and being unable to write this book and being overwhelmed by this book. And it worked like it would work. I would feel that the, that burden sort of leave me for a moment and I could be mindless and I could ignore the fact that I had to have, I have to have this book for tenure. And then I would fall asleep and wake up and everything would be worse than when I left it. But for a moment, right, for an hour, an hour and a half, I didn't have to feel that pressure anymore. I didn't have to feel what I was feeling. But this day I talk about in the piece was particularly bad because so I dropped my my daughter off at school in the morning and either my husband or my mother-in-law picks her up. So what I would do is sort of time all this and it takes a lot of energy to, to manage alcoholism. But in, in this way, I would time all of it so I could wake up sober for her to come home to see her. But then I would go over to my in-laws and drink probably like three more beers was all I could really stomach. So there was like a total of seven to eight beers um, broken up through the day on my worst days. And that day, I just remember like I was almost forcing them down. Like my body just didn't want to drink them or didn't want them inside of it. But I needed that relief. I was chasing that relief and it wasn't coming. And so I, I got in the car after trying to, trying to drink, you know, the feelings away, it didn't work. And I never felt that bad. I can't remember ever feeling that bad before just spiritually and morally and physically bankrupt. And I have a colleague at William and Mary who, uh, is, is sober and she's lovely. And she had been, we had been talking about, um, my struggles. I was honest with her and I just texted her. I feel really bad. And she's one of those really lovely, admirable, inspirational people who put their phone away um, and doesn't respond right away. (laughs) And, uh, I realized sitting there sort of waiting for a response that I was really talking to myself. So that was my last drunk, my worst moment. And I knew I had to do something. When you knew you had to do something, how did you choose what the something would be? So my <clears throat> my therapist, who I've been with for 
I, I guess at least three years, three and a half years, had been recommending I find some kind of recovery community uh, because I had been struggling with alcohol my in, entire time in in Virginia. Some kind of recovery community where I could meet other people who were sober and form those connections. And he was very, it was always a suggestion he gave me. He never pushed me. But the next day, after the day I described, I got that urge again. I wanted to go to the store. I wanted to buy beer. I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. And I I found an online meeting. And I told myself, if you just go to this meeting and it was, it was on zoom and I was scared to death. I was so nervous. I had no idea who else was going to be there. You showing up to one of those meetings is definitely admitting you have a problem to at least the people in those meetings, but also to yourself. So I just told myself, if you go to this one hour meeting, you can buy beer after that was the deal I made with myself. And I went to that meeting and I haven't, I haven't drank any alcohol since. You interviewed a number of people for the piece. We spoke earlier about disconnection, connection. How did interviewing people for the piece create another sense of support? Oh, it was really wonderful. Uh, just just to talk to other academics who struggle with addiction because academia and addiction aren't you know uh, don't it's not that every academic is struggles with addiction obviously and then everyone who struggles with addiction isn't an academic and so in that Venn diagram to find people who understand both the struggles of addiction and academia is is really precious. It was it's very precious to me. And I had a similar experience when I wrote my piece on mental health. So understanding how academia works as we were sort of discussing earlier, it's it's very niche and particular and specific. And then how addiction flourishes and functions within that space is also specific. So speaking to these other academics who struggle just made me feel so connected and less alone. On the same in this in in a similar way and and this has been the case because the topics I write about are difficult topics. It can be difficult and, and hard to hear how much people struggle and how they've been struggling alone. I mentioned in the piece, most of the academics I interviewed wanted to remain anonymous because of the stigma attached to addiction. And so as I was interviewing them, I knew that their what they were sharing was going to stay with me it wasn't like we could form a community of all of us right it was me connecting with them individually and and so that that fear you know was was an interesting level 
of or um, element of these interviews compared to my other pieces. And again, everyone is so scattered. You know, I have these utopian visions of getting everyone I interviewed in a room so we could just talk and be with one another and help each other feel less alone and be more connected. But at least I got, I can say what I got out of the interviews because I'm not sure what they did. Uh, Again, that feeling of connection, feeling less alone, recognizing that all that shame I felt. There's this sense, right, that no one is worse than you. Like you are the biggest failure. Like when, when I was doing what I was doing and drinking during the day and, and not writing my book, I had this sense that I am the biggest failure of academia. I got, I won the lottery. I got a tenure track job at the college of William and Mary. It was one of the best jobs on the market that the year I went on the job market, I got a job my first year on the market. Like I am, I am one of the luckiest people alive and I am ruining it. I am blowing this shot. And that just, the weight of that was so heavy. And so just to talk to other people in academia who also struggled, like relieve some of some of that sense that I was somehow special and that I was the worst of the of the worst, um, and and that's a gift. Uh, the connection led to to that gift. There were a couple people in the piece who let you use their name. Mm-hmm. Um, one person you interviewed was Olivia Snow. Yes, and she spoke about the use of stimulants as a way to get through the mounds of work. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in, in that part of the piece that this is the acceptable kind of addiction. Right. Right. I'm, it's the necessity. Oh man. You know, when I was in grad school, everybody was taking stimulants. There, there was the one, one student who was prescribed them and it's funny like the one person who actually needed them to function didn't actually take them which is common and sold them and so I remember in my master's program they had these comprehensive exams where you would get three essay questions about reading lists you came up with with professors and you would have to write three 20 page essays over the weekend. And it was just really absurd looking back on it and thinking about what does this prove? Why is this uh, an exam? Who writes like that? But of course, people would take, students would take stimulants so they could stay up all night trying to write these essays and get them done. And that was the first time I ever tried Adderall, not doing my comp exams, but in my in my master's program. And I remember reading an entire, it was Edward II, Christopher Marlowe play, just being able to sit down and read through a play, which was magical to me as someone who later discovered I actually do have ADD. 
just that feeling of, oh, I can, of product productivity, right? And there's this sense of virtuous, being virtuous and being productive. So it's not just these absurd sort of exams. And I mean, it's really a problem of capitalism more broadly, right? Like this, the sense that the more machine-like you can become, the longer you can sit still, the longer you can work, the, the better you are. And these drugs allow you to sort of ignore that part of you that needs to rest, that needs the five minutes in between focus periods, that needs sleep, that needs to be a person who's more than than their work. And, and so these drugs allow you to, to, to um, live up to this illusion that that the harder you work and the longer you work and the less you take care of yourself, the better you are, the more successful you are. And I think academia is just a breeding ground for those feelings. The work is endless. There are these ridiculous, absurd exams and um, tasks and lots of sitting still, right? Lots of um, reading and writing in front of a computer at a desk. And it's just easy, you know? It's easy to fall into the trap of taking drugs that will allow you to work for longer than you're supposed to be able to than your body is supposed to be able to work for. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Olivia. We talked about a lot of different st- substances. You know, one thing that didn't make it into the piece that is very important is how alcohol at academic events is often tied to sexual harassment, um, particularly faculty with grad students, undergrad students. Um, it can really blur those boundaries uh, and those power dynamics and allow people to be taken advantage of. And so we talked about that at length. And, and it it was really wonderful to, to speak with her and, and she's so smart and just to hear her perspective on, or her take on what we use these substances towards and how academia puts those pressures and demands on us. You talked about producing those incredibly long papers in such a short period of time. There is this strange system of creating a tremendous amount of work in a system that is supposed to prioritize learning, but in order to create that much work that fast, we can't really cycle through all of the normal phases of learning. We have to somehow skip over it or be someone who learns fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure we learn well if we learn fast or that we've learned new things because for me something new takes me a long time yeah. and, and I do think that there's this 
you know, so with these comp exams, right, you create these reading lists over the course of a semester or a year, you slowly make your, like the way it's supposed to be is slowly and independently make your way through the readings and the books and have regular meetings with your advisor and maybe get some writing, some make some notes on each book. And so when it comes time to write these papers, you have your notes, you have your sources, and you can sort of write, write something. That is the healthy, productive way to go about it. But again, it circles back to what we were talking about in terms of flexibility, independent work. And I would say neurodivergence, right? Like this, this, um, neurodivergence, but also just the ability to structure your own time or to work well in unstructured time. I don't do well with that. Like I really struggle to hold myself accountable and to set my own deadlines. And I think it's tied to my mental illness. And so what these drugs allow you to do is if you have not been that responsible person that is working through the process independently and on top of things to sort of complete a large amount of work in a short amount of time. But what I will say is that, is that academia doesn't exactly give you the luxury of doing that kind of learning as the only thing you're doing. So it was also teaching as a grad student in my master's program. While I was studying for comps, I was also teaching two two, uh, writing courses, undergraduate writing courses. I was also, you know, you have lives, right? Like in my PhD program, when I was supposed to be studying for my orals exam, I I had a newborn baby. It's, it's never, there's always things to fill the time. And so academia, again, all juggling all those balls is very difficult. So, so if you end up at the end of the day, when you're supposed to do the hour of reading or whatever, and you're exhausted from teaching and you're exhausted from life and you don't have the focus, you can't get through the reading. What the stimulants allow you to do is circumvent or supersede, right? That need for rest. And that is just too seductive. I think for many, many academics, I think part of that is kind of built into the system. There's no inherent personal goal in creating three 20-page papers right. a weekend. Right. It's to please whoever is in charge of the gatekeeping and whoever is in charge of setting the standards. And so you're doing this work to please someone else. We're not renewing our own internal sense of self, our own internal validation systems by doing this. So we have to keep doing more and more because the only sense of reward is coming from outside us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I will say like an, another perspective, I loved moving through my reading lists for comps. I designed them, even thinking back to that period. And, you know, I was writing on jazz in, in 
black writers works american black writers works i was writing about the garden and roses and early modern lit and i was writing about eastern religions in um british modernism so like virginia wolf and joyce and elliot and i loved the work you know i i and i loved reading reading those pieces and and i love what i do but you're right. There are these, there are these hoops to jump through that don't have to do with that love that you have for for the uh, literature or the writing or the whatever intellectual ideas. It, you have to sort of prove. It's it's this idea of like proving you know or proving you've done it, and it can be very difficult at times uh, to translate that love for what we do into something measurable. And, and I think that in under those pressures, you know, many of us do turn to substances in one way or another. And I'm not saying that academia is forcing us to right? like, that's one critique I got of the piece is like, what's so special about academia, there are alcoholics in every profession, you know, it's your fault, you're an alcoholic, um, you shouldn't blame your profession. And I, I hear all that. I, what I'm trying to do is talk about the particular pressures in our profession and academia that people turn to substances to relieve. I'm not blaming academia. Um, I'm thinking through what it is about our profession that, that um, feeds already existing addictions and perhaps exasperates them. My drinking got very bad the second I started graduate school. And I think that for me, it's important to reflect on why and that connection. And I know from my interviews, I'm not alone in that. And so yeah, just just exploring and reflecting and thinking about these things, I think is my goal and 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 to create that connection and to reach out and to relieve some of the shame as opposed to, you know, what the headlines my editor picked did suggest um, that I was blaming academia for addiction. That's not the case at all. I'm just interested in in how it may exasperate or allow for um, existing conditions to to uh, grow. And you make clear in the piece that it is your journey. And you do say in the piece that addiction is an illness and it is defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder. Yes. I mean, I don't think most people recognize that addiction is just seen as a personal feeling and an inability to moderate yourself, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a mental illness. And for all the lip service that academia gives to being accepting and diverse and, um, you know, a place of accommodation, 
we haven't extended that to addiction and, and academia is not alone in that. But as I sort of gesture to in my piece, this is the space where supposedly radical new ways of thinking and about and viewing and being in the world are thought up. And one thing we could do is to shift this perspective of addiction and the cultural imagination as this, as a personal feeling, because it is an illness. I remember, I'll never forget. Um, a, and I'll just try to keep this as vague and anonymous as possible. A very public figure, um, was in an argument with me. Um, they were, and, and this, this figure sort of gained their platform through, discussions of mental health and mental illness. Like they were seen as a leading advocate and they were complaining about and demonizing this person who was struggling with alcoholism. And I said to them, I was like, you do realize that alcoholism and addiction are mental illnesses, right? Like this person's entire platform was built on being a mental health advocate. And even they saw people who struggle with addiction as failures and, you know, um, just that that they should be ashamed of themselves. And I I just, and again, it's not, you know, we have to hold people accountable for the violence they inflict and the harm they create, regardless of what they are diagnosed with. That's not my argument, but I think that this shift in perspective to include addiction and addicts under the spectrum of, of people who struggle with mental illness and mental health more broadly is so important. You interview a doctoral student who told you that it's quote, not about the amount of alcohol in academia but thinking more about universal design, a concept centered on reducing the stressors that would help everyone need fewer substances to calm their nerves. Mm -hmm. What did they mean by universal design? What did it inspire you to think about or hope for? I mean, so I'm not, they're the expert on universal design. I was actually introduced to the concept through that interview, but my understanding is that instead of offering special or specific accommodations to people who struggle, we think about shifting the entire system um, to allow everyone to benefit uh, from, from these accommodations or these, these changes. And so when it comes to addiction, I think there's a lot of work to be done in thinking about universal design and, and how holding addicts or people who struggle with addiction close and, and thinking about better worlds and safer spaces for them. Um, we actually make the entire profession less poisonous and more healthy, um, and more of benefit to, to other people. Um, at first, you know, and I say this in the article, I came in as a wanting to be a policeman, like, well, 
wouldn't universal design mean no wine at academic talks anymore? Um, so <laughs> nobody, everyone can be healthier because alcohol is a poison. And, <laughs> you know, I was just a real asshole before I started talking to my, my, um, the people I was interviewing because I'm early in my recovery. It's difficult for me to be around alcohol. Like I'm very, today is 39 days sober for me. Like this is the very beginning of my journal, a journey. But as I talk to people who are older and, and wiser and further along in their recovery, they sort of told me, you know, you have to pay attention to your side of, keep your side of the street clean, right? It's none of your business if other people drink, why they want to drink. We have to be in a world where alcohol is ever present, right? And so it's doing your own work. But from my understanding, right, universal design is, is thinking about the work we can do that will benefit everybody. Um, and, and I think that when it comes to thinking about how people with addiction struggle, and I say this in my piece too, like, there is a tie that this trope of creative people, people who are deep feelers, people who are sensitive to others, people who are empathetic tend to struggle more with addiction because they feel so deeply. They want to try to regulate those feelings or squash those feelings or, or silence the voices. Right. And so to think about, how do we create a profession that nurtures creatives, right? Uh, I think is an interesting question because the world itself is very poisonous to artists in a lot of ways and capitalism is poisonous to art and artists. So thinking about how we can protect those members of our academic community is really interesting question because that's where innovative ideas come from, right? A creative, creative people. And I haven't read any of the research. I just know about in the cultural imagination, right? Artistry is, is tied to addiction. Um, and I'm sure that there's been great research and work written on those parallels. I just haven't read it. Um, but maybe thinking about how do we protect artists? How do we protect creative people? How do we set up spaces that they can flourish and work without, you know, feeling this need to, to tamp down the intensity they feel just being alive? I think all of these are interesting questions that I haven't really worked through fully yet, but, but yeah. It kind of takes us full circle back to the opening of your piece where you pack up from the library to not write your book. Yeah. If we go back to an imaginary point as readers before you bring us into this story, there was a book that you wanted to write. There was a book that you sent in a proposal that an editor said, yes, write that. Hmm. How do you reclaim that wanting to write? And have you been able to talk to your editor about needing more time? So I did get six months, a six month extension. 
and my editor is going to work with me to hold me accountable each month for the writing I'm doing. She's going to read the chapters as I revise them, as I write them. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have been extended that grace. I, I do the same for my, my students. Um, so it feels good to get it back in terms of reclaiming my joy for the book, that is such a beautiful and difficult question. Uh, this book is based on my dissertation. I've been working on it for a decade. There's a lot of work and, and thought out there about, about how people finish big projects like books, you know, um, that it, I'm not alone in getting near the finish line and being so sick and tired of the book and wanting to give up. You know, that these are things so many people struggle with. For me personally, I asked for six months instead of a less amount of time because I do want to reclaim that joy. I do want the freedom. In, in some ways, I think I've outgrown the book. You know, I've been writing all of these public pieces. I have done less academic writing than I have, you know, writing these memoir, life writing, reported pieces. I want to think about how to bring that new voice I've developed to this book. I want to think about so much of my career has been rethinking academic audience, like who are academics talking to? Why aren't we writing in the Huffington Post? Why aren't we writing in open access? Why aren't we writing in ways that convey our ideas, which hypothetically we feel are so important to the public? And I want to take that voice that I've nurtured and, and that has developed over the past years and rewrite some of my book. And I have the luxury of doing that because of the press I pick. And so I wanted that time to, as you said, try to fuse who I was when I started that project and who I've become in the past couple of years as a writer. So I'm envisioning a coda where I've set up interviews with queer people today who have become pregnant and I'm going to talk to them and put what they say in conversation with my chapters on Shakespeare's plays. But then I was like, also, I could be playful and ask them, what's your relationship to Shakespeare, you know, and just sort of see what they say and have a coda that's kind of reported where I do in individual interviews. And then what's a creative forward or introduction or how can I interweave my personal experience as a pregnant person through the text, like, like I want to write a book that's me and that I'm proud of and that reflects the work I've done on my voice. And I, I needed more time for that, you know, and I had so many people just tell me like, Alicia, just write an average book, just write a bad book. It doesn't matter. It's your first book. Like, you know, but my writer's voice and my, reputation of, as a writer have become very important to me. And I don't want to publish something I'm not proud of. And so I have decided to kind of work on other projects I'm working on for the month of December, and then turn back to the book and really rethink 
what I want it to look like. And I have a contract, you know, and I'm, I'm not changing any of the major plays I'm working on. I'm not changing any of my core arguments, but I want to, I want that joy to kind of show up in the voice of the book. And so that's what I'm going to be working on. And honestly, I think, I think getting sober was a very important step. You you know, our bodies and our minds are so tied to who we are as academics. And, and I just, I think there was a part of me, I'm, I'm great. I've been so grateful this past month that I recognized I could not finish this book if I was not healthy and I wasn't healthy and sobriety I think has given me the baseline to I fed myself so I can produce something I'm proud of so I am proud of myself even though it's it's very easy to feel like a failure because I had to ask for yet another extension and, you know, I failed to meet a deadline and I've been working on this for so long and have so little to show for it, but it's a journey. It's a, it's a process. And, and I'm coming out of my leave, not with a book, but I'm coming out sober. I'm coming out with articles like the one that this HuffPost article, um, I'm coming out having formed new communities and, you know, it, it feels like the start of a whole new life. And, and I'm, so I'm trying really hard to just be proud of myself for that. You ask in the piece, what would a profession where we are fully present with each other look like, <laughs> where we don't tamp down the intensity of being alive? It sounds like that's the work that you're doing. Yeah, it is, you know. Um, and I think about my classrooms because I never drank before teaching. You know, I've never shown up to my classes high or drunk. And my students know me better than anyone because we sit together and we're fully present with each other um, in at least two to three days a week talking about these ideas. And, and so I think about my classrooms as those kind of utopian spaces. And I think this idea of, you know, the, the word sober has negative connotations, right? Like to be sober is to somehow be boring or, you know, but my interview with Patrick James just totally flipped my whole perspective on sobriety, you know, it's like, what could be more wild than showing up for, life and your feelings and other people fully present, fully there, feeling everything you feel. Um, and, and I, I want, I, again, I want to be that person for the people in my life. I want to be fully present for the people in my life and, and in here and, and with them. And, um, and so I'm excited, you know, I'm excited. I, I have gotten to a place where I know that I'm, 
only responsible for myself. Like I'm not going to be the alcohol police um, of I said the sober killjoy of academia, but I'm excited to learn how to be in the world and with my colleagues as as a a sober as a sober person. Uh, James told me he said, "Yeah, sobriety is the wildest thing I've ever done," and I just hear that line in my head all the time. Um, so, so yeah, I'm I'm just I'm really excited to see who I am and how I think and as 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 someone who is who is sober towards the end of the piece you talk about the unique learning that comes out of being in this new space in your life to see people as more than their feelings to know what it means to be judged to do beautiful things to have the ability to see the world in new ways to be empathetic and compassionate, to struggle and still show up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I learned so much of that while I was still drinking. I, um, you know, I'm really, I, I, I practice a lot of Eastern religion. I, I listen to a lot of, of audiobooks on Eastern religion and there's a lot in there about about how if you have not struggled right you you cannot be the kind of person who is empathetic and who reaches out and who sees people as more than their feelings um and who is fully present with people like our struggles make us and it sounds cliched but i'm grateful that I have struggled so, and, and, and I will continue to struggle. You know, I, I'm very determined. I, I, I know that this is my path. Like I, I, I know to be very careful. I know to go to be in touch with my recovery communities every day. And, you know, I'm reading all these memoirs about getting sober and I'm just gathering all the information I can and I'm fully committed, but I'm grateful. I know the struggle so I can be in a space where I'm not judging the very many people who struggle with being addicted to substances. Um, And that's a continuum, right? But it's funny I just tweeted about my, um, I was really nervous about the holidays, really nervous about my family are heavy drinkers and going back to Christmas, going back to my parents' house for Christmas. And I learned that my sister has organized having mocktails there and that her and my brother and my sister-in-law are going to do sober Christmas with me. And I just, in that moment, it felt very utopian, like this kind of sympathetic sobriety. And I just remember thinking when they told me, like, I want to, I want to be that person, right? I want to, I want to be that kind of person in the world who, who accommodates somebody joyfully, right? And 
And so I, I feel like all of this, all I've gone through, the decades of struggling with alcoholism and addiction has is has made me the kind of person who will who will joyfully accommodate and be with and show up for those who are still struggling and that's the kind of person I want to be and so I'm grateful I'm a grateful alcoholic I saw that social media post yeah it ended with to me, an important line that you didn't share here, which was you, you talked about how they're organizing the mocktails and who's going to be do, doing it. And then you said, and you know what? I'm going to let them love me that much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because my first instinct was, no, no, I don't want to ruin Christmas for you. You can drink, you can have the eggnog and the mimosas and the beer. And like, I don't want to ruin Christmas for you. And then I was just like, they, I'm, I'm going to let them, I'm going to let them I'm going to I'm going to let them love me that much. I'm 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 going to accept the love. Um which has always been a very hard thing for me and I think it's hard for a lot of academics lots of people in general just to accept love and and accommodation and warmth and support and I think as part of my journey I'm going to start letting people love me, you know, in that way. And, oh, when they told me I was, I was so overwhelmed and, and I, and I couldn't help but think about sympathetic sobriety and academia, right? Because I didn't ask them to do that, but they saw my struggle. They saw me, they want to support me. And I just wondered what, okay, what, would that look like in academia, right? If we could be open, first of all, that we're in recovery and that when people know others are in recovery, it isn't like, oh, they're a killjoy. Like we want to drink this wine. It's like, well, maybe we can have some mocktails and we can create this fun kind of sober space for you. Like, I don't know. It just felt, yes, it felt utopian. And, and I, I, I feel so lucky to, to have them in my life. And I just thought it was the speaking from the person as the person who is the one struggling to get sober that was loved in that way. Oh, it, it, um, it just makes me, it just, um, I cannot tell you how meaningful it is. So if there's one thing you take from this podcast, <laughs> just know that those kinds of gestures to people who are in recovery, oh my gosh, they mean the entire world. They mean the, the, the whole world. We're starting to run out of time. And we've gone a little bit over and I can hear how much you've given to us today. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I think in I think that in being vulnerable and sharing my lived experience, I and and the response I'm getting, which is generally support. 
I hope that other people who are struggling can in their own way in which they are comfortable come forward and ask for support and love. And, and then in turn, my hope is that if you are not somebody, an academic who struggles with addiction or alcoholism, just an awareness um, of, of how, of how others might be struggling and to sort of meet them with compassion uh, whatever that looks like for you and to create more spaces where people in recovery can fully be themselves and out and open um, about about their sh- their struggles. And I'm just really hoping for a bigger conversation about the academy's relationship to alcohol. Um, and the assumptions, some of the assumptions that we make that might not be correct about addiction and addicts and um, people, people who struggle. So that's sort of my hope. I, I don't pretend to be an expert on anything other than my lived experience and what I've gone through and what has helped me. And my hope is that in, in, in sharing, I spark conversation and acceptance and and love. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Alicia Andrzejewski, and opening this conversation about addiction and academia. This is The Academic Life. Please join us again.